And I would invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 12. Several years ago, um, I read a, a book, uh, Charlene and I read it together, written by a man by the name of Malcolm Gladwell. The book was entitled Outliers, The Story of Success. Uh, and it was very interesting as Malcolm Gladwell looked at people who were what we would call largely successful, and he looked at how did they get there, and, and some of the uh, some of the reality of it was some people were just born at the right time and lived in the right place. But in his second chapter, he talks about the 10,000-hour rule. Uh, in, in that chapter, he looked at you take people given similar opportunities and, and similar advantages and experiences, and you ask what made one great and what made one just good. One of his examples was violinists, students who had studied the violin. And by the time they got to the point where they were entering into college and going to see whether this would be a career, there were those who were good, but there were those who were great. They had talent. They were going somewhere. And what they tended to discover was that those who were great had over the time that they had been taking violin lessons, had put in 10,000 hours of practice. And it was that somehow that 10,000-hour mark made a difference. And it, didn't, it wasn't just the violin. It was anyone that uh, was summarized this way. It takes 10,000 hours of intensive practice to achieve mastery of complex skills and materials, like playing the violin or getting as good as Bill Gates at computer programming. To put that in perspective, I did a little math. If you practiced or programmed or whatever the endeavor was, if you did that four hours a day, five days a week, consistently, intensive practice, not just playing the scales and saying I'm done, intensive practice, not just hitting a few chips with a golf ball, a golf club saying, oh, I'm good, intensive practice, and you did that for 10 years, that would get you at the 10,000 and a little bit over mark. Some would call that ambitious. Some would call that sacrifice. Some would call it nuts. And granted, there are exceptions to the idea, and there are those who have now taken Gladwell's theory and said, well, no, it doesn't work that way, but it still seems to resonate. And you know, a year from now, we're going to be talking about the Summer Olympics, Lord willing, and everything remains the same, in Paris, the Summer Olympics in Paris, and you're going to see those stories. They do them every time. That student who got up at 4 o'clock every single morning and went and worked out and then went to school and then after school went back to the gym, back to the practice facility and worked out more. That family that quit their job and sold everything and moved to another location so their, their gymnast could have the right coach. We all 
sacrifice. And in those types of sacrifices, sometimes their craft becomes their life, and their life becomes their craft. If you look at the word sacrifice in the dictionary, you're going to find this entry. To surrender or give up or permit injury or disadvantage to for the sake of something else. Hopefully by now you're at Romans 12, chapter 2. In Romans 12, chapter, in Romans chapter 12, we come into, and in these two verses, we come into a very familiar couple of verses. Uh, it's once again one of those little sections here in Scripture that some of us may have committed to memory and quoted. And yet, in any endeavor, I would caution you, whenever we we quote verses and all, it's great to memorize verses, it's great to quote them, make sure that you understand the context. I was at a place the other day, and the particular um, vendor had a, a tip jar, and on the tip jar it said, money is the root of all evil. Cleanse yourself here. (laughs) Now, I wasn't going to correct him that the scripture actually says the love of money, but it's that. But sometimes we kind of do the same thing. I would caution you: don't just cherry pick verses. Think about their context. Think about uh, what's being said in the overall book. Think about why God put that there. Over the past few weeks, we have taken big chunks of Romans. Today, we come down and take a little chunk. Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. If we're going to understand Romans 12, 1 and 2, we need to understand it as we look at it in light of everything we've talked about over the past few months. And there is a lot here in these two verses. For every person in a Roman house church in about 60 A.D., maybe a couple years sooner than that, for every person, when Phoebe walked into that house church and when she read the book of Romans and explained it to them, they knew exactly when they got to this place, they knew exactly what she was talking about. They knew exactly what Paul was talking about when he talked about a sacrifice. For the Jewish believers there, they had grown up hearing about sacrifices, and maybe some of them had even made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem over the time of the Passover to offer a sacrifice at the temple. To the non-Jewish followers of Jesus who had grown up in pagan cultures, they knew all about sacrifice because every system where there was a god or a goddess, every worship system required sacrifice. So they were aware of sacrifice. It wasn't a surprise to them. And what Paul does is he takes that whole understanding of sacrifice and he puts a brand new spin on it for them, but it's a spin, it's a, it's a, it's a way of looking at it that's applicable today as it was in 59 AD. Paul begins with this premise. 
And let me read it to you in the word order, the way you would see it in the original. I urge you, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies. Paul's writing says, I'm urging you, I'm begging you, I'm pleading you in light of God's mercies. And, and, and the, we put the therefore first, but it was the urging. That was the most urgent thing. That was the most important thing. Paul's been writing for what we have in our Bibles, 11 chapters, to show his audience that God has been working in the world ever since time began. And Paul has laid out for all of us, and we put it in the form of questions. And the first one was, what's wrong with the world? And we saw in those first few chapters, sin. Sin messes up everything. Sin destroys everything everything in its path. Sin is what's wrong with the world. He laid that out for us. But then he showed us that how Jesus being willing to sacrifice his life on the cross for you and for me paid the penalty for sin. And he is the answer for humanity. He carefully outlined the fact that one can only live a set-apart life by entering into a faith relationship with Jesus. And when they enter into that faith relationship, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And Romans 8 reminded us that the Holy Spirit dwells us, assures us that we're God's children, prays for us. And he's revealed then through history, Romans 9, 10, and 11, that God is a sovereign God who's in control, who's not losing his, any sleep because he doesn't sleep, but he's not losing any sleep over the fact that our world is a mess. He figured it would be a mess. And, and so he has a plan and he's working his plan. He's bringing out his plan. And he's revealed through history of Israel that he's a sovereign God. And in light of all of that, in light of all that you see in Romans 1 through 11, in light of all the mercies of God, and that's the plural. It should have been plural here. I don't know why these guys didn't do it plural. It should be God's mercies. There's so many of them. It's hard to count. And in light of all of that, those who believe in Jesus are to live their theology, to live their life in a very real and practical way. And he says, this is how you live in light of all that God's done for you. And he uses the term living sacrifices. The first thing that we can see about living sacrifices is that living sacrifices actively offer themselves. Now, while everybody sitting there in any of the house churches in Rome knew what a sacrifice was, a living sacrifice, that's a little different reality. You see, typically a sacrifice was something inanimate. Maybe it was grain or fruit. Or a sacrifice was an animal, but it was typically dead. You brought it in and you, you were part, I mean, in, in, the, in the Israel, you would lay your hands on the animal and then it would be killed and it was as if like you were offering yourself. But all of a sudden we have a, a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice is active. A living sacrifice has a choice in the matter. Some have called this a living dead thing. And, and, and what's interesting is that Paul is simply building on and reframing and restating what Jesus said. If you would go back in your Bibles to Luke 9.23, you would read this. Jesus says, 
If anyone would be my disciple, they must take up their cross daily and follow me. In other words, if you're going to be my disciple, you need to be a living sacrifice daily. Take up your cross and follow me. So Paul takes that idea and and states it in the context that his people could understand it. A living sacrifice. A living sacrifice is a daily thing. It's not a one and done. And our response to the mercies of God who created us, who loves us, who sustains us, who provides for us, who created us to be rational, volitional beings who can communicate and create and invent and develop is to give ourselves to him in view of God's mercies. That word mercy, very simply stated, is not getting what I deserve. Not getting what I deserve. You see, we all have situations where we deserved something. I won't go back into it. I told you about getting a warning ticket on my my wedding day. You know, I deserved a ticket. I was shown mercy and did not get what I deserve. And what we do, how we respond to God is to say, God, I haven't ever gotten what I deserved because of your mercy. I got more than I deserved because of your grace. Here I am. Use me how you would. The best response for you and me to a God who has done all for us is to actively offer ourselves to him. That means we live our daily lives in a way that reflects God. And the grammar is such here that this is a constant process. I, I would, you could even say it, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to keep offering your bodies as a living sacrifice, to keep doing that, every day to do that. It, it, and, and Paul says this is holy and pleasing to God. The word holy does not mean perfect. The word holy does not mean better than. The word holy means set apart. When I was a kid, we had a big china cabinet in our dining room. And in that china cabinet were special dishes that we only got out no more than three times a year. They would come out at Thanksgiving and Christmas and sometimes on Easter. Otherwise, they stayed there. We didn't use them for anything. They stayed there on beautiful display. They were holy. They were set apart. They were dishes, but they were set apart. Because when we ate dinner in the kitchen, or lunch in the kitchen, or breakfast in the kitchen, we used the regular dishes. But when it was the dining room, and those, by the way, those dishes never, ever sat on the wood of the dining room table. No. It was a perfectly pressed linen tablecloth, white tablecloth, and they were perfectly placed. It was, I, I know we didn't have to wear gloves, but I, I think if my mom would have thought of it, we probably would have. And they were, per, they were set apart. They were holy. When we give ourselves to God, we are saying, God, I am setting myself apart to you. And God says, this is holy. He says, it's pleasing. That's a word that means acceptable. 
we present ourselves to God as we set ourselves apart to Him. We live our lives according to the best of our understanding of the Word of God. And God says that's acceptable. Knowing that we are fully acceptable to Him only because Jesus has made us acceptable. You aren't acceptable to God in and of yourself. You are acceptable to God when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul says that's our true and proper worship. Something sad has happened in my mind in in our Christian circles. We've relegated the word worship to singing. You know, we'll say, oh, my friend led the worship. And what you, we all know is they led the singing. Now, I think it's a very narrow view of the word. It's not wrong. It's just a narrow view of the word. Worship is far broader than just singing. The word translated worship here could literally mean service. Another word that's translated worship oftentimes is a word that means Kiss to. It would be turning your focus to something. But this word actually means service. And the words true and proper come from a singular word that if you took the actual letters from the text and you wrote them out using our alphabet, it would be logical. In other words, in view of everything God has done, in view of how amazing our God is, it is just logical to present yourself to God as a living sacrifice to be used for his service in wherever he chooses. This is just not a Sunday thing. It's a a seven-day-a-week thing. This is not just a church thing. It's every aspect of our lives thing. One scholar calls it lived theology, and I love that term. Theology is the study of God. And, And you could say, well, I'm no theologian. You know what? You really are? Because we all, as A.W. Tozer once said, once wrote in his book, uh, Knowledge of the Holy, we all have a mental image of God. And we all have a way of what we think God is like. And we live our lives based on that. We're all, in one sense, theologians. And what you think about God is actually reflected in how you live your life every day. What you think about God is reflected on the type of employee you are. What you think about God is reflected in the type of employer you are. What you think about God is reflected in the type of neighbor you are. It's lived theology. How you interact with your spouse, how you interact with your children is lived theology. It reflects what you think about God. How you interact with your parents, how you interact with your siblings, lived theology. Does my lived theology provide an accurate reflection of the God I say I love and serve? The life you and I live is to be an offering, our sacrifice to God. How do we do that, Pastor Scott? How do we live a life that reflects God? Well, fortunately, Paul wrote verse 2. And and actually what verse 2 states is going to be amplified throughout the rest of Romans 12 and on into 13, 14, and 15. And and how we begin to live that that theology that we want to be proper, that, that is service to God, comes from this reminder. Living sacrifices 
actively change their thinking. Paul says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul is so good. When he has something that we're to remove, he always gives us something to replace it with. And so the removal is do not conform to the pattern of this world. The idea of conforming, the way it's presented here, is to not allow one's self to be molded and shaped or formed into the pattern of this world or this age is actually a better word, this, this time frame. When I was a kid, I had to get braces. Now the benefit of all the work they did is I still have all four of my wisdom teeth because they moved and pulled molars and everything else. But then one thing they had to do so they could do it right is they took this gunk and they put it in this metal thing and they jammed it up into my, you know, just hold on to that, you know. And then they did it to the lower side too. And, And then I saw this mold of my teeth. I mean, there it was, all crooked and everything. And it's like, oh, yeah, I need braces. Yeah, thanks, Dad, for paying for those. Uh, That's the kind of the point Paul's saying is don't let yourself be crammed into to be molded into the prevailing thoughts of the culture of the age. Uh, The term here, because because I think age is the better word, it fits with any time frame. For the readers in Rome, the age was the Roman Empire where they lived. And that was an age that was violent. It it was an age that was uh, everything about the imperial advances of Rome was paramount. Rome was everything. There was a thing that they called the Latin was Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Well, they kept the peace of Rome by soldiers that would go down and tamp down and, and just destroy anybody who seemed to be making waves. It was a a time in which loyalty to the empire and loyalty to the emperor were very high values. And if you weren't loyal to the empire or if you were seen as disloyal to the empire or the emperor, it could cost you. It could cost you business. It could cost you finances. It could cost you your life. That was the age. It was a time of rampant immorality. The idea of an age makes this applicable to all. We live in a post-Christian age. In other words, by saying that, it means Christianity does not have the influence in the United States of America that it had even 25 years ago. We live in a consumerist age. We're all about consuming and buying. And whatever you have today, it's, it's obsolete next week. Uh, If you bought a new computer this year, you're already seeing the new models coming out. You buy a brand new car and and, and you, you you get the 2023, well, hey, the 2024 models will be out in October. It's consumerism. We live in an age of pluralism. And pluralism is like, well, all religions are equally valid. We live in an age of divisions. We live in an age of power grabs. We live in an age of technology where AI, artificial intelligence, is starting to take over. No, I did not use ChatGTP to write this sermon. We we cannot jettison ourselves from the age. It's where we are. We're not called to simply drop out. 
We're called to live in the age where God has placed us and to navigate it, but to not be molded into the prevailing mindset and thinking. How do we do that? How do we not be molded into this age and not be so out of it that we can't even engage people in conversation? Paul says, replaced the drift of conformity with changed thinking. In other words, he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The word that's translated transformed is the word we get metamorphosis from. And it doesn't mean that we're just like chameleons who just kind of change with whatever the color. It means that we allow God to change us in the depth of our being. Transformed is that word, that metamorphosis, that word we use to describe when a crawly, furry, fuzzy, leaf-eating caterpillar transforms through metamorphosis in the cocoon, transforms and becomes a butterfly. Well, what a transformation from a crawling caterpillar to a beautiful, graceful, attractive, life-giving through pollination butterfly. A transformed, lived theology of grace and kindness and respect and loving one's neighbors themselves, all the while holding strongly to our faith, strongly to the truth of the Word of God, strongly to our God, and not being pressed into the mold of this age that is act- it will actually be an attraction. Even in a post-Christian world, when you live a consistent, transformed life, people sit up and take notice. How do we get transformed? Paul says, by the renewing of our minds. You've heard me say it many times, real change in our lives does not begin with external behaviors. Real change begins deep within. It begins with renewal. That word renewed, uh, by the renewing of your mind. That word renewed is a word that could literally be translated renovation. It's a process. Have you ever renovated a room? Maybe some of you have renovated an entire house. And, and you know that the first part of renovation, and I know this because I've watched enough HGTV shows to know that demo day is the best day. I have demoed a wall. I have demoed things. I love demolition. Once you're done demolishing something, you just sit back. It's like, I have no more stress. I have put all of my stress into that wall. That that felt so good. Uh, But you've got to get away all the old. You've got to get all the cosmetic changes away so that you can get down to to the bare studs, as it were, and say, what am I working with? When we put our faith in Christ, he does a renovation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says we become new creations. Same word is used there. We are new. We're renovated creations. And and, and it's not just that you said a prayer or you you kind of gave an assent. I mean, that's not wrong or you went forward or somebody prayed over you. All of that's okay. But remember we talked about it's got to be change. 
You see, if, if you... If, if you really know Christ, then he is working to change you. You can't stay with Jesus and just be the way you've always been because the way you've always been may have been molded in the spirit of the age. How are you responding? I ask myself, how am I responding to the Holy Spirit? Paul says this renewing, this renovation is in our minds, our thinking our understanding, our perception changes. When we are in Christ, we do see things differently. In fact, when we are in Christ, we have a different framework for evaluating things. When we are in Christ, we need to evaluate the voices that we allow ourselves to be influenced by. Think of the voices, and we all have voices. We all have our favorite podcaster, our favorite YouTuber, our favorite TV preacher, our favorite, whatever. We have these voices. Think about those voices. Do they promote fear? Do they promote division? Are they arrogant? Or do they move you to love and good deeds? Do they remind you to see what it means and to think about what it means to love your neighbors yourself? Do they produce And do they promote forgiveness and repentance? Do they promote the fruit of the Spirit? See, if my thinking is the same, I came to know Christ when I was nine years old. If my thinking is the same as it was the day before I came to know Christ when I was nine years old, then I haven't changed. I'm in danger of conforming. If my thinking... If, if I haven't grown in my perception and my understanding of who God is in my life in the last 10 years, I'm in danger of conforming. Renewed thinking that transforms my understanding of the age in which I live gives me the foundation for accurate evaluation. And Paul finishes, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Living sacrifices actively evaluate their purpose. Why has God placed you here at this time? In our ministry over the past three-plus decades, there are certain questions that Charlene and I have discovered that are just, they're repeated. It's one of those ones, if I had a dollar, especially in youth ministry, but throughout if I had some money for, someone, for every time someone asked me, how do I know the will of God, it'd be, a, it'd be a good retirement. That's so often asked about a future decision. What's God's will as far as the college I should attend? How do I know? Uh, I, I've got this job offer. What's God's will? Uh, How do I know what God's will is? Maybe I ought to move here. Maybe I ought to do this. Maybe I ought to do that. What's God's will? And we treat God as if he's some kind of mystery writer. We we treat him that, you know, if I solve all the clues that God has, if I solve the mystery, then I'm going to make the perfect church choice. I'm going to be in the center of God's will, which I don't even know what that means, but I've heard it used all my life. I'm going to be in the center of God's will, and I'm not going to miss out on some amazing blessing that usually equates to success or wealth. 
Paul says, it's not a mystery. When you and I allow the Spirit of God to transform our thinking to be God-centered, we will have the ability to test and approve. That's one word in the text. It means to evaluate, to examine, to determine if something is genuine. And we will be able to test and approve God's will. In other words, we will know God's standards. And where you go to college is not as big of a deal as, do you know what God's standards are for your living, for your life? That which is good. It's moral. It's a moral standard that's upheld by the Word of God. That which is perfect literally means mature, complete, whole. The will or the desire of God. You will know what God wants because you've allowed the Holy Spirit to renew your mind because you've gotten to know the person of Jesus and you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit and you know the Father. When I was a teenager and I got to drive, we had one car. By God's grace, my older sister was in college in West Virginia. So this kid got the car. Friday night, football game, right? And then our church would do a little thing afterwards, or I'd get with some friends. And anyway, I would say to my dad, hey, dad, what time do you want me home tonight? Whenever he thinks reasonable, son. I hated that answer. You know, that, no, what time do you want? Whenever you think's reasonable. So if I come home at 2 in the morning, well, if you think that's reasonable, we'll deal with it. You know what? I never got in trouble. I got in trouble for a lot, a lot of stuff. But I never got in trouble for coming home late because I knew my dad and I knew his definition of reasonable. I was able to evaluate his, re his will. If you get to know God, you will be able to evaluate his will because the Holy Spirit renews your mind. Well, how does that work in the real life? Let me wrap this up by giving you just a couple of things. I think the way this works in the real life is we all approach life with questions about how to make life work. And I think part of learning to evaluate what God wants is maybe sometimes asking a different set of questions. For instance, God promises to meet our needs. And so maybe our question ought to be, God, Help me to discern whether I need this or whether I want it. And you know what? Wanting it's not sin. Okay, don't, don't hear that. But it's the idea is, okay, do I need this at this time? Do I need this at this moment? Is this something that can wait? Maybe the deeper question is, why do I want this? I read a blog from a pastor recently. He's a pastor in, in Tennessee. He had been diagnosed with a severe problem with his vocal cords. He was told, to me, this would be like the kiss of death. He was told he should not even utter a sound for six weeks. I'm hoping I wrote that right. If it was six months, it would just be like over. He had to allow his vocal cords to heal. And his doctor said something that really didn't make him happy. He said, by the way, speaking is just a secondary function anyway. What? He goes, yeah. He says, if you can't speak, you'll still live. Primary functions are brain functions, your heart, your lungs. Speaking's secondary. 
You can imagine the struggles. Getting pulpit supply for six weeks. Uh, just wrestling with what's my future. He says that he got up one morning at 2 o'clock and he's just wrestling with all of this. And he grabbed a piece of paper and a pen and he sat down and he wrote, If I can never speak again, then what? And he said he just sat there in the darkness and listened. And eventually this came to mind. Then you will find new ways to praise me. See, a renewed mind looks at the difficulties of life that seem impossible and steps back and says, Okay, God, I don't have a clue. I don't have an answer. I don't know where I'm going, but I'm going to wait for you. And if I can't do this, what? And God will be there in those moments, even when life throws a curveball at you. Second example, a young friend of mine, very new in his career. He got a call one day. Hey, I think you would be great in this position at this company. And I would like you to apply for it. We'd like to interview you. I mean, it was going to mean more money, more perks. It was going to mean more uh, a step up. It was managerial. I mean, it was, it was pretty big. And, and, and my young friend had some wisdom. He, he got together with his pastor and his pastor sat down with him, and his pastor asked him this questions, a, a new set of questions. When I, when I heard it, I thought, ah, I wish I would have said that. But I didn't say that. But the pastor said this, if you take the money and the perks out of the equation, where do you sense you can glorify God the most? A new set of questions. Asking different questions, not how much can I save, how much can I grow, how much can my retirement account grow, how much can my investments go. No, where can I glorify God the most? New set of questions. A living sacrifice daily presents themselves to God as his instrument in the place where they are at that time. Wherever you are right now, you present yourself to God. That's what it means to offer yourself to God. A living sacrifice allows God to change their thinking so they ask different questions about life than those of the prevailing age. That's part of what it means to have a renewed mind. A living sacrifice is actively learning and evaluating how the way they live life in every aspect and making sure that as they do it, they, they positively reflect the person of God, Father, Son, Spirit, and as a result, they become much more aware of what God wants. That's what it means to evaluate what is God's will. And you and I will never do it perfectly. But if we don't begin today and simply say, here I am, Lord, change me, use me, we won't begin. It's not going to take 10,000 hours. In God's economy, it takes living out our theology, our belief in God, our belief about God on a daily basis in the real, the practical, and even the mundane decisions. And taking God at his word that when we do mess up, and we will, he forgives us. And he'll help us get back on our feet 
and he'll help us start over again. Father, thank you for your mercies. They are many. Thank you for your word as it guides us and directs us. Thank you for this practical advice from the Apostle Paul. May we ask you to change us, to guide us, to direct us as we each day offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen.